Welcome to Central Queensland Region's Leading and Learning Podcast. These are informal conversations between leaders about educational issues and initiatives. We share them to inspire and inform you so that you may have a greater influence through your instructional leadership. I acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land across central Queensland on which we play, learn and work. I respect and honour Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander elders past and present. I extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander educators listening. I recognise the stories, traditions and living cultures of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples on this land and commit to building a brighter future together. Hi, I'm Trudy Graham, your host for the show. I'm an Assistant Regional Director in Central Queensland, based in Rockhampton. And today, very excited to be talking to Michael Makoda. And Michael is a Regional Wellbeing Coordinator. Welcome to the podcast, Michael. Thank you so much for having me, Trudy. It's great to be here. And Michael, you're new um, to the role as Regional Wellbeing Coordinator. I am but not new to listening to podcasts. So you would know in central Queensland that I typically start with a one word barometer. How are you? Yes. And a conversation starter. I would love to know what's been your greatest learning since starting in the role. Yeah. Thank you, Trudy. And thanks for having me. My one word barometer for today would have to be the word well. I am well. And it's really great to be here to talk to you about well-being. The thing that I have learned that I'm really excited about working with the department is around how passionate people are about well-being, how interested people are to talk about well-being, and it's something that's coming up with every conversation that I have, that everybody is really keen to get started in something well-being related or uh, would like to learn more about ways that they can contribute to their school or regional office or individually as well. So it's really exciting to be a part of. Yeah. And I love your one word and I have to agree with you. I was making jokes uh, earlier in the year about well-being a great way to be uh, given, you know, COVID and That's right. viruses and all sorts of stuff. And yes. I've, I've not been well myself. So I think, and if I reflect, it's probably about being a bit run down and, and you know, body's not in its best yes. in terms of managing ill health. So this is a great time of conversation because I know I'm not the only one and there are many people um, right now in our organisation that want to take care of themselves. So let's, right. let's dig in and Michael, tell me about you know being well. What does it mean and why is it so important? Yeah, it is really important, Trudy. Uh, the thing that I find with wellbeing is that it does mean something different to everybody. Uh, what well-being means to you, for example, might be a little bit different to what well-being means to me. So I think it's important to highlight that and having conversations with schools and regional offices and individuals as well. Um, it's really highlighted that it's something that means something different to everybody. So I think that's the first point. I will just sort of highlight that throughout, throughout our staff well-being framework, some of the documentation that we use when promoting well-being across central Queensland. Uh, the World Health Organization defines well-being as a state in which every individual realizes his or her own potential, can cope with the normal stresses of life, can work productively and fruitfully, and is able to make a contribution to his or her community. And the thing that really sticks out to me, the part that I like to pull from that, is that 
uh, ability to cope with the normal stresses of life. So something that you mentioned there about how, you know, you may be feeling run down on a particular day or you know, everybody's dealing with stresses throughout their life, whether they're small things like getting stuck in traffic on the way to work or being late to a meeting uh, or, you know, there's more significant things that happen in people's lives too, like, you know, the death of a family member, for example, or losing your job or losing your house. There's some significant things as well. And um, to me, well-being is about filling up your bucket full of resources, of well-being resources, that stuff that makes you feel good, uh, so that when you do experience, experience one of those life challenges that you, you've got the well-being resources in your bucket that allow you to get through those challenges, whether it's social support or whether it's health and fitness or whether it's uh, that mental state getting you through those moments of challenge. Yeah, great. So benefits of improved well-being benefits as well yeah so um this is something that we really promote because well-being is so important and it's really evidence-based as well so there's a lot of research that's gone into well-being the things that we sort of talk about there's some studies from 2007 and 2009 that really highlight some of the benefits of well-being within a workplace so some of the key benefits include improving staff engagement um it was seen to improve by up to 48 percent uh, sick leave absenteeism um, decreased by 25% with the implementation of a good well-being program. No surprise there. Yeah, that's right. Uh, they found, this is a really interesting one, that for every dollar spent invested in employee well-being, there was a saving of $5.81 seen. Uh, and then some of the individual benefits, some of the things that... Um, Sometimes maybe a little bit more challenging to measure, but subjectively there's there's feelings of wellness, you know, your own personal feelings of feeling good, uh, feeling fitter and having more energy, sleeping better, um, feeling more positive about work and having that level of job satisfaction. So there's heaps and heaps of benefits to implementing well-being into your own life. Yeah, it's kind of stating the obvious, isn't it? But yeah. I think it's important to have it highlighted. So, Michael, talk to us about your role as the Regional Wellbeing Coordinator because we have quite a number of people that work in the wellbeing space and I think we can get a bit confused about who does what, so I'd love to hear that. Yeah, there are lots of people involved in wellbeing across the department and I think that highlights how important it is and part of that, you know, everybody's discussing wellbeing and there's so many players in that space. So, um, yeah, it's a great question. Um, I wanted to start because the Regional Wellbeing Coordinator role, it is relatively new. It was only sort of established in late 2020. Talking a little bit about the history of the Regional Wellbeing Coordinator role, it is relatively new. So since late 2020, it was established. There are seven regional wellbeing coordinators established across Queensland, across each of the seven regions. And since late 2020, I was looking at the data earlier today, and we've had over 1,200 requests for support around wellbeing across the state, uh, and over 16,000 staff have been uh, presented to, educated, uh, have involved themselves in workplace conferences and that type of thing. So. Um, there's heaps of work being put into well-being and, uh, and it's really exciting to see. One thing we mentioned about how there are so many different players in that well-being space, uh, the focus of the regional well-being coordinators is mostly on staff well-being. So the big focus is on staff well-being, something that is very, very important. 
Um, if a person feels well and feels good about work and in their personal life, then that can trickle down into the student well-being as well. So we're really targeted around staff well-being, Trudy. How we do that? Uh, so it's a staff-focused role and we use the staff well-being framework to guide implementation of staff well-being plans into schools. So the staff well-being framework, it's a five-staged structure where we highlight the needs of a school and then we support and facilitate and provide resources and education to a school to be able to realise their dreams around well-being so that they can really take ownership of that and drive well-being forward over, you know, 12 months, 24 months, three years and beyond. So, um, yeah, really exciting stuff. Wow. So what are you focusing on right at the moment? What initiatives are coming our way? Yeah, um, great question, Trudy, and really excited to... Uh, firstly, uh, there's there's a few things that I wanted to talk about in, in this question around initiatives. The first one that is relatively newish is the staff mental health strategy. So the staff mental health strategy is being driven from the top. You know, we've recently had some really key communications through our director general. Uh, I met with Kay Kirkman, our regional director in term three, and we talked at length about um, the importance of mental health focus and how we're going to do that through communications and initiatives over the coming years. The staff mental health strategy uh, looks at sort of a 2022 to 2024 initiative where the focus is really on establishing a long-term plan to create psychologically safe workplaces and to foster positive mental health in our places of work to build a more resilient and connected organization. And this all comes about, you mentioned around COVID at the moment. Um, one thing that I do hear from time to time in my discussions with staff and with schools is around that workload, time management piece, stress management piece, resilience. And so it is coming up quite a bit at the moment and, and the staff mental health strategy talks about 20% uh, of Queenslanders currently experience some form of mental health sign or symptom or, or condition. And when we consider that the Department of Education is one of the biggest employers in Queensland with over 90,000 staff, that's a big, big number of you know, our own employees that are experiencing some form of mental health. So um, it's a really big focus for the department, really big priority for the department, and it's something that will continue to be communicated over the coming months and years. How that happens, we're looking at a three-tiered type structure around the staff mental health strategy. So there's a lot of effort. If you consider, say, an up upside-down triangle um, with three layers to it, uh, the first layer and, and a whole lot of effort and work being put into promotion, prevention, uh, building awareness, building capability around mental health. So uh, giving everybody the resources, the understanding, the ability to support each other through uh, mental health and in the day-to-day -day, uh, course of work. The idea around that is if we spend a whole lot of energy and work around promotion and prevention and education and awareness raising, uh, that perhaps we don't have to spend so much time, even though they're very important, we don't have to spend so much time on those next two layers, which are related to support and early intervention around mental health and eventually, you know, response and recovery. But the thought is spend a whole lot of preventative work, promotional work, um, and the rest will come. 
Yeah, and I think educators get that model yeah. because we um, talk about it being universal strategy. So, yes. you know, what's good for everyone yeah. and being proactive in that first layer, yeah. as you've just beautifully described, so that you lessen the impact where you need to do the intervention and the response yeah, later. exactly so, right, Trudy. Yeah. The other couple of initiatives that I wouldn't mind speaking about is um, it linked into that staff mental health strategy and a big focus for me, something that I'm really passionate about is workplace culture, that organisational culture piece. And we're always talking about psychosocial risk factors. So they're those things that within any workplace, um, if not identified, managed, controlled, uh, looked at and reviewed regularly, can sometimes lead to uh, mental health signs and symptoms and conditions. So psychosocial risk factors are those things like having clarity around your role, um, reviewing how things are communicated within an organisation, um, whether you feel valued and supported um, by your supervisor and your leader, um, and other pieces like bullying and harassment, occupational violence and that type of stuff. So um, there's a really big focus around psychosocial risk factors through this piece as well. And I can't help but add into every conversation that I have um, the employee assistance program. So um, I'm sure you know plenty about this too, Trudy. Um, we communicate it regularly across um, the department. The employee assistance program um, available through an external provider called LifeWorks is a free, confidential, 24-7 service that's available to all departmental staff and also their immediate family. Um, which just allows a counselling service that, you know, happens either through a phone service, sometimes face-to-face, -face, but that I think that that's a really valuable service um, that is available to people um, within the department. Um, and in line with that EAP, Employee Assistance Program Service, there's also some additional services like the Principal Coaching and Support Service, which is a big focus for us to communicate in term four and beyond, uh, available uh, specifically for principals. Um, very valuable service there that currently um, could be utilised more. Um, and then uh, manager hotline, complex manners hotline and principal uh, support hotlines as well. So heaps of heaps of uh, stuff going on and heaps to communicate in that mental health related space. Yeah, and Michael, as we always do, I'll pop all the links in the show notes. Yes. So that people can find those great resources and yeah. contact details. So. Use them if you need them. They're there. Yeah. Yep. yeah. And they're free services that the department makes available for us as yes. employees. So, yeah, great. So, Michael, how can schools know if the work they're doing in wellbeing is actually making a difference? One of the five steps of the staff wellbeing framework that I mentioned earlier in, in our conversation uh, is around reviewing the needs of the schools. So when we talk about rolling out wellbeing initiatives into schools and regional offices, I, I always talk about trying to keep it really simple. You know, uh, we talk regularly about um, time management and the workload of staff. And so we want wellbeing to be as simple as possible, you know, really focusing and targeting on the two or three things that matter uh, and spending the most resources and time on the things that are actually going to make a difference and that the staff want and need. One of the, uh, one of the great ways that we do that is through the use of um, surveys and through data uh, analysis. So the wellbeing team has created a needs assessment survey. Um, it doesn't take long to complete, 10 minutes to complete. 
um, and we provide that to schools so that the staff can actually provide a response back in um, some key questions around the five domains of well-being and some free text responses that allow staff to provide their feedback around what they'd like to see and what they're challenged by, what they're excited by, and we use that to drive the action plan and the wellbeing action plan forward over 12 months. One way that we can see if wellbeing is making a difference is by reviewing that data again after a certain period. So if a wellbeing strategy has been really effective, we should see uh, progressions in the data. So people will be feeling more comfortable and happy about their wellbeing. Uh, there should be some cultural improvements around the psychosocial risk factors that I mentioned, people's job satisfaction and clarity on role and um, really happy with the levels of communication throughout the school and those types of bits and pieces. So the needs assessment survey, I think, is a really great way to see if wellbeing is making a difference in a school. The other pieces of data that we look at are things like, you know, we can look at workers' compensation data, we can look at um, staff turnover or staff retention data, school opinion survey data, um, annual safety assessment data, which we um, completed recently. So there's heaps of data pieces that we can look at to analyse if wellbeing is making a difference. And I think just subjectively, Trudy, uh, individually, people can feel um, whether wellbeing activities are making a difference, whether you feel closer with your colleagues in, in the workplace. Uh, whether you feel like you have more energy when you wake up in the morning and are feeling more refreshed. Um, there's heaps of subjective measures, whether you're feeling more positive about life and work and, and the future. Um, those subjective measures individually as a person, I think, can make a really big difference too. Yeah. So, Michael, if schools want to do more in the wellbeing space, what steps do they take? I mentioned uh, earlier, we want to keep it really simple. So uh, the regional wellbeing coordinators usually work on a referral type basis. So we're not about um, approaching schools out of the blue and saying, hey, you need to be doing something wellbeing related. We're really um, wanting to have that management commitment, that leadership commitment first for uh, schools or uh, maybe auxiliary staff, you know, assistant regional directors, for example, guidance officers. We, can't, we quite often will get uh, requests through ARDs and guidance officers, etc. Uh, principals is a big one um, approaching us to get involved. So if you're interested in getting involved, if you're a leader within a school or a regional office, please reach out to your regional wellbeing coordinator. Um, if you're a staff member in a regional office or a school, speak to your leader and speak about the benefits of a wellbeing program and uh, have them approach me as well and we can get it started. Yeah. So as we come to the end, is there anything else that you wanted to share that we haven't covered? Yeah, what I, uh, I missed to say, how can schools get involved? Now, I bet... Uh, I don't want to assume that if schools haven't approached me that they're not doing something well-being related. So I just want to highlight that um, there are, um, I've seen examples of schools who have approached me, but they've already been doing stuff well-being related. So, you know, that's definitely not the case that just because they haven't approached me that they're not doing stuff. I think every school is probably doing something well-being related. Uh, one way that a school or an individual can get really involved around wellbeing is to access the, the many, many resources that are available through the One Portal. Um, we've got a staff wellbeing page. If you search for staff wellbeing on the One Portal, 
there are hundreds of pieces of information around all of the five domains of well-being, um, heaps of resources, uh, courses, workshops, uh, external providers, um, heaps and heaps and heaps of resources, which I've taken myself through a whole bunch of them and I think they're really valuable. And I think individuals and schools could really um, get started in the process by looking through the one portal at the staff wellbeing resources there too. Yeah, and, and again, links are in the show notes. Yes. So that brings us to the end of the official part of the podcast. Yes. Michael, you would, having listened to previous episodes, know we do the fast five that aren't so fast. Yes, I do know them. Are you ready to play? I am ready to play, Trudy. Okay. Thank you. So usually I ask, what was your first teaching position? But, you know, you don't have a teacher background. So I'd love to know, Michael, what was your first role with a wellbeing focus? Yeah, thanks, Trudy. I started uh, as an allied health professional over 15 years ago. Uh, I actually graduated as an accredited exercise physiologist, um, which might not be really well known. Uh, my first job was in a gym, a, a little gym in Wynnum in Southeast Queensland. And my focus around wellbeing was supporting injured people with musculoskeletal conditions or chronic metabolic conditions like diabetes and uh, obesity, etc., cetera, uh, with prescribing exercise to improve those conditions. So. I ran a lot of uh, sessions through Medicare and Departments of Veterans Affairs uh, to do with diabetes education, osteoporosis education, and other uh, conditions that can be improved through exercise. And mental health is one of those as well. There's some really great benefits to a person's mental health through exercise. So yeah, that was my first job over 15 years ago uh, in a little gym in Southeast Queensland. See, now right now, I just want to hear about the rest of your career. Yeah. <laughs> but, um... <laughs> Maybe next Fast time. forward. <laughs> Michael, when you think about your work, what was the last thing that made you smile? Yeah, well, it was actually this morning, Trudy. Uh, I visited uh, North Rockhampton State High School and I met with uh, Jason White, the deputy principal there, and he also introduced me to the uh, clinical psychologist there, Shani, and um, we had some really great conversations about well-being in that school and um, what made me smile was just how passionate uh, Jason and Shani both were around uh, workplace culture, around mental health, around mindfulness. Um, and I really liked to see how aware Jason was. You know, um, he was really passionate about doing some really great things over the next 12 months. And he was, uh, he, he's already bought in to the benefits of well-being and was really keen to get, um, continue on that track of well-being in the school. So I had a big smile on my face after I left that uh, okay. catch up this morning. Michael, what's your best book or film recommendation? Yeah, uh, this was a book that was introduced to me just recently since starting in the RWC role. And it's something that we promote through a lot of our education programs around self-care and resilience um, and work-life balance. And that is... The Third Space by Adam Fraser, which I think you're familiar with. And I know Kay, our regional director, is very keen to discuss The Third Space when she can. Adam Fraser, the author, it's an audio book actually, so that might be cheating a little bit. Um, but he's a great talker. Um, he's got some really great stories. It's a really entertaining book. And the premise around The Third Space is that space in between where we are right now and where we're going to be in that next moment um, of life. So as an example, you know, you've had a rough day at work 
is using that moment between work and the next place you're about to arrive at home, for example, and using that space in between work and home to reflect on what just occurred, uh, to rest and take some time to yourself, and then to reset and to be the best version of yourself in that second space. So it's a great book. It's got some really great ideas and thoughts and reflections, and I'm really enjoying listening to it at the moment. Yeah, it's a great book. What's your favourite quote? Yeah, uh, the, my favourite quote, I'm not sure if anybody um, in particular has said this. It's just something that I remind myself of. It's something that I'm really trying to work on as well uh, and, and reflect on regularly. And it's simply communication is key. I feel like the difference between a great relationship and maybe a not so great relationship is how you're communicating. So. I'm really focused on as much as possible having that face-to-face discussion um, being more beneficial than over the phone versus email, for example. So, yeah, my favourite quote is communication is key. Really simple, but I think really something that um, we can all work on. Yeah, and I can't help but reflect that that really links into that psychosocial risk factors you were talking about before because communication often comes out in that space too, doesn't it? It sure does, yeah. Um, It's something that comes up a lot is that people really want communication and they want it to happen effectively and um, you can see some really great outcomes from great communication. Yeah. Mm. Um, So, Michael, as far as things to see in CQ, what's our best-kept secret? Uh, I just wanted to um, highlight, I attended a really great wedding, my brother's wedding. Um, He had it on the Springshaw Golf Club which um, if you've been there, it, uh, it sits underneath the Virgin Rock. And we flew over that in a helicopter, beautiful scenery, um, especially at sunset. Some of the photos that were taken there um, were just beautiful. So I, I think the Virgin Rock in Springshaw um, would be my pick. Wow, great. Yeah. Great recommendation. Yeah. Thank you. And thanks for taking the time to talk with us about wellbeing, particularly staff wellbeing, such an important topic like you've highlighted and so many great opportunities, resources and priorities there for us to work with. So Definitely, Trudy. Yeah, I'm really passionate about wellbeing and I can see that the department is as well. And so thank you so much for having me today. It's been really great to talk to you. You're welcome. If you have suggestions or recommendations for future episodes or you'd like to give us the gift of feedback, you can email us at cqcommunications at qed.qld.gov.au. If you've enjoyed the show, don't forget to subscribe in your favourite podcast app. You'll find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher and Spotify. And do you know of an educational leader in central Queensland who may enjoy listening to the conversations? Help us spread the word by telling them about the podcast or forwarding the email that comes each fortnight with the show notes. Thanks, Michael. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Central Queensland Region's Reading and Learning Podcast. We trust this conversation has given you the information and inspiration to lead so that every student in our region succeeds.